going to be in Psalm 16, which Linda just read for us today. That is on page 453 in your pew Bible, if you'd like to turn there. Um, it may be helpful to have that open in front of you. And let me ask God to help us as we turn to the psalm. Heavenly Father, um, through David, who wrote this psalm, the Holy Spirit speaks. And so, Spirit of God, we, we humbly ask you to speak to us today in those places in our lives we desperately need. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. At times, the Bible commands emotions, commands us to feel certain ways. Take joyfulness as one example. Rejoice in the Lord always, Paul writes. Again, I will say rejoice. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice. Shout for joy. Psalm 32. There's also the emotion you might call contrition, genuine sorrowfulness over sin. John Frederick taught us about this from Psalm 51 last week. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Be broken hearted. We could also add the command to be thankful, to have feelings of gratitude towards God. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. Psalm 107. Now, the Bible is, of course, aware that our emotions often seem outside of our control. I mean, commanding your heart to feel joyful sometimes can feel like telling a stone to smile. And the Bible's aware that at times life and its circumstances can be so difficult that certain emotions, like joy, can seem nearly impossible. Think of Job. Yet the Bible, nevertheless, does command feelings at times. And today I want to consider the biblical command to delight. Delight yourself in the Lord, David commands, Psalm 37, verse 4. Now to delight, it, it means to feel something. It means to take pleasure in something, to revel in it, to savor it, to enjoy it. And the Lord commands Israel to delight in his word, in one instance, he commands them to delight in his word like you might delight in the Thanksgiving Day feast. Listen diligent to me, God says, and eat what is good and delight yourself in rich food. Isaiah 55 verse 2. And then as I just mentioned, David in Psalm 37 speaking to the downcast and the troubled, he commands... Delight yourself in the Lord. Now, in both these two cases I just mentioned, the phrase is delight yourself. Do the delighting. And that even David, I mean, of all people, the sensitive and hot-blooded David, even that David commands us to feel delight is instructive. David is someone that we might call in modern jargon a feeler. 
He knows from experience what it's like to feel under your feelings as though they control you. Think about the instance with Bathsheba or think about his reaction to the death of his son, Absalom. But nevertheless, David did learn, at least in part, how to funnel and fuel his feelings. And he often did so through music and psalm writing. The sweet psalmist of Israel, as David is called, he wrote over 70 of our psalms. And I want to turn to one of these psalms with you this morning, Psalm 16, because it it stands like a helpful test case to see how David practiced delighting. Not how he had a cheap good feeling just by a coincidence because he woke up on the right side of the bed. I don't mean that. Not that he never was depressed. Not that he never felt sad. Not that he was always chipper. But that somehow this man knew in any and all circumstances how to delight himself in the Lord. And so in our second sermon, in our little mini sermon series called Disciplines of Disciples, I want to consider with you the discipline of delight. I wonder if you've ever thought about delight as a discipline. I think if it's commanded in the Bible, it's something we do need to learn how to practice. And David's own heart is a great place to learn. We don't know the specific context of Psalm 16. It's 11 verses. It's early in the Psalter. Uh, We don't know the specific context or circumstances that brought it about, but it's clear that something happened where David had faced a trial that was life-threatening. Verse 1, preserve me or protect me, O God. Verse 8, because you're at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Verse 10, you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or hell or let your Holy One see corruption. You don't write stuff like this if everything's just been going fine. But the danger, it's past, and in many ways, it's entirely faded into the background for most of the psalm. David doesn't focus on how his outward circumstances change. He doesn't tell us any details about that. Rather, he speaks of how his heart changed, how it moved from feelings of fear and despair to the heights of joy. My heart is glad. My whole being rejoices, verse 9. Verse 11, in your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures or delights forevermore. So how did this shift from despair to delight happen? How does David practice the discipline of delight? I think we can walk through this psalm in three main sections of it. And see that David's delighting involves three things. The portion, the practice, and the promise. Let's just look at each of these briefly and see what they tell us about the discipline of delight. So first, the portion. As we'll see, by this I mean that David delights in something. This isn't an abstract feeling state brought in by a psychedelic. He delights in an object. We'll see what it is. David moves quickly, as I said, past this prayer for protection in verse 1 to a decided setting of his face toward God. Verse 2, I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. 
I have no good apart from you. Then in verses three through four, David says, and I also, I delight in those people that delight in you, and I turn away from those people who run after other gods. Verses three and four, as for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another god shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. Finally, in verses five through six, this is kind of our first section, David makes his case crystal clear. He is after God alone. Picking up at verse 5, listen to what he says. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I want you to notice the word portion in verse 5. Do you see it there? David refers to God as his chosen portion. In David's time, this word portion, it, it often stood for a portion of land. You know, the land was a portion to the 12 tribes of Israel, the promised land. And often the word portion spoke specifically or technically to a portion of land that your tribe would have been given. Now, these portions of land it's actually almost impossible to overstate their significance. It's what moved you from being a nomadic person to actually being a people with a land. The, the land meant for Israel home, it meant security, and it meant a livelihood. Everything else they enjoyed, labor, family, and worship, depended in large measure on the land, on their portion. Now, some commentators think, and I agree with this, that it may be the case that David is writing Psalm 16 at a time when he had been driven out of the land, away from his portion. David was of the tribe of Judah, and that tribe's land apportionment was in southern Israel, and it included the city of Jerusalem. Now, throughout David's life, he's often a man on the run. Early on, when he's just been anointed king, but Saul is the acting king, David is driven out of the land because Saul's trying to kill him, and he has to flee to Gath, and he lives among the Philistines. Later in life, at the height of his power, his own son Absalom plots against him, and David once again has to flee the royal city. At times in David's life, he is a man on the run, sleeping and living in the wilderness, at one instance, even living in a cave. So at times, David found himself outside his portion. So we might imagine the background of Psalm 16 as a time when David felt his kingdom and his inheritance slipping through his hands. And it's in this circumstance, in verse 5, that he makes the bold declaration. The Lord, the Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. God is David's land. God is David's city. God is David's good. God is David's portion. He says in verse 2, I have no good apart from you. Have you ever said that? Do you know what it's like to say that? Seemingly your portion, I mean everything else, your portion in this life, or what you hoped it would be, just stripped away outside of your grasp, when you've had to say, I have no portion except you, O God. Um, St. Augustine once wrote, 
He who has God has everything. He who has everything but God has nothing. What does it mean for God to be your portion? What does it mean to have no good apart from God? Does it mean that it's wrong to enjoy anything outside of God? That it's wrong to delight in your family or delight in a football game or delight in good food? Does it mean it's wrong to like or want anything else? No, I I think what it means is that God is your greatest treasure and that you really can't enjoy anything else if it's at the cost of being close to him. Consider an, an example or an illustration. Imagine a groom on the day of his wedding. It's a joyful day and all his family and his closest friends have come. He's been able to hire his favorite band and there's amazing food. It's going to be a great party in a beautiful setting. There's just one problem. The bride bails. She doesn't come. Now, one of his cheeky college friends says, well, look, mate, we still have all this food and drink and music. Why not still have a party? I mean, look, the food hasn't changed. The band's the same. This person now, because the bride isn't there, the food will be dead to his taste. The music will fall on deaf ears. The well wishes of family and friends will be meaningless. Why? I mean, they haven't changed. The music hasn't changed. The food is exactly the same. Why? Because the bride is his portion. Her presence imputes meaning to everything else. Take her away, and everything else is tasteless, even though it's there. That's what it means if God is your portion. It means you could be given the whole world, but if it comes at the expense of having God, it's tasteless. It's meaningless. He is your portion. His presence with you, if it includes his blessings of other things, they're enjoyable because they're of him and they're from him. So this is the first thing we have to see about delight. It doesn't rest on any other circumstances. Not that other circumstances don't matter, but it's a decided orientation of the soul where the soul reaches out towards God and it understands both intellectually and experientially, I have no good apart from you. You, oh God, are my chosen portion. That's the beginning of delight. Now, we can move from this idea of David's portion as God to how he actually practices delight. I mean, you can say that in the morning. You can pray that. But is there anything we can learn from this that David does, like a discipline to really practice this? And this takes us to our second observation, which I just call the practice of delight. And we see this in verses 7 through 9. Let me read these to you. And here I think we we get an idea of David actually doing things. He says, I bless the Lord, verse 7, who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. 
I think we get a sense here of God's closeness to David, both in God speaking and communicating to David and also his standing before and beside him. There's a nearness here. But we also see David doing something actively. I want you to notice verse 8. He says, I have set the Lord always before me. Believe it or not, I couldn't find another instance in the entire Old Testament where that verb set and Yahweh were in the same sentence. So I was asking myself, what does that mean, David? What does it mean when you say, I set the Lord before me always? Well, we know it doesn't mean that he had a little, like, idol, you know, a little kind of statue of Yahweh, and even in a foreign land, he put this up behind his sink or on his hearth. Israel was forbidden to make images of God because they were the image of God. But we know that that's not what he did. So what did David do to set the Lord always before him? I think at least one of the things going on here is that David is meditating on the word of God, on God's speech to him through his word as a way to draw near to God and have God's present before him. And I say that because There's another phrase where this verb, I set, is used in Psalm 119, but the psalmist there doesn't say, I set the Lord before me. The psalmist says, I set your rules before me. Psalm 119, verse 30. And then when David says in verse 8 that he talks about God's counsel, elsewhere when we find him talking about God's counsel in Psalm 32, verse 8, he says, we read this, God's saying to David, I will instruct you and teach you In the way you should go, I will counsel, same word, you with my eye upon you. So I believe David's in a foreign land, and he's setting the Lord before him, I think personally, because he can't go up to the temple. He spent so much of his life away from the temple. So he sets the Lord before him. He he offers, he brings in God's counsel by immersing himself, perhaps by memory, in God's word. Now, There's a theme, especially in the Psalms, where people experience delight in God's word. One of the most famous verses for this is Psalm 119, verse 103. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Now, when a person like David would be thinking about meditating on the law, he's not thinking about his own psalm. He's probably thinking about the first five books of the Bible, okay? And at the center of this are the Ten Commandments and what is known as the Shema from Deuteronomy 6. Follow me here. The Shema reads like this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. So a lot of times when you find an Israelite saying that the word of God, the law of God, the rules of God are sweeter than honey, they're talking about the law of God, which is strange. I mean, have you ever found yourself reciting the Ten Commandments as a way to delight your heart? Thou shall not lie. Mm. Mm. Thou shall not steal. Oh, that feels great, Lord. So sweet. Or, Or how about when you're fighting temptation? Let's say temptation to... Envy someone else's talent or their circumstances. You feel it coming on. You fight the temptation. You say, thou shalt not covet the 10th commandment. Does that feel delightful? 
To the contrary, in many instances, God's law and its immediate application can actually feel sour, especially when it's cutting against a competing desire. What do, the, what do these Bible writers mean that the law of God is sweet? I think we need to think a little bit deeper here because there's an amazing truth here. What David means and what psalmist means when they, they delight in God by hearing his counsel, by setting his word always before him, I think what they're experiencing is what you might call the deep truth, the deep truth of the word of God. This is the truth of the word of God when it is lived. When it's lived day by day, the law of God, you discover in your soul and you experience that it's true. And this is very delightful. You find that these laws ordering your life this way, it holds water. It has intrinsic validity. You find in keeping the law that you've come to rock bottom reality. You're moving from chaos towards order. When a person truly seeks to love God and love neighbor, when a person stops lying to others and to themselves, when a person starts to honor their neighbor, not gossip about them, when a person learns to celebrate others' accomplishments rather than coveting them and so on and so on, they begin to feel as though they've touched firmness. And it feels delightful to know that you are bringing yourself into the very order of your nature, that you're no longer a being simply made in the image of God. But that by keeping his law, you are beginning to shine as the image of God. And there is a twofold delight for the woman or the man who is setting God's law always prefer before her or him. Hearing the counsel in the day and the night and living this way. There's a twofold delight. The first is practical. It makes your life practically better. You're like that traveler who after being completely lost because their phone died and they have no map and they're on bumpy back roads at night, not knowing where they're going, wanting to get home, you're like that lost traveler who suddenly finds her way back to the highway, sees a sign for her hometown and is cruising along. Oh, this path is so much better. It has a practical delight. It also has a relational one. Why? Because it pleases God. And friends, it, it feels awfully good to know that you're pleasing God. As David orders his life according to God's ways, even in a foreign land, you see, he creates in his own heart a temple for the Lord. He creates a place for God to dwell. You know, if you're, if you're a young person... Um, or anybody really, and you find yourself you know, out and about in your life in different pockets of the world, and in order to keep God's law, to keep him before you, you have to cut against the grain a little bit. Like you can't just go along with what other students do or what other coworkers do. And at first it, it, it feels awkward, but you do that for several months. And so you're walking along, you're not going to the party that night, you're going home because you want to get up early for church and you're by yourself and it's been hard for the first few weeks. But suddenly you feel this waft of joy because it feels so good to be pleasing to the Lord, to have chosen him over the whole world. Have you ever experienced that touch of delight? I think David is with the Philistines. If you study his life, you'll realize he got himself totally enmeshed with the Philistines. When he says in verse 4, 
I will not pour out their drink offerings of blood. I think we find David resisting being inculcated into that cult. And instead, and he could have, they would have loved him. And he stands back and he says, no, you're my portion, God. I set you before me and your counsels, they're sweet. Even my heart instructs me in the night. There is a sweet pleasure, my friend, even when all H-E-L-L is breaking out in your life. There is a sweet pleasure in the lone night hours when you know you have cast your lot upon the Lord and you are doing your utmost to obey him. There is a delight in that practice. So we've seen the portion, we've seen the practice of delight. Let me just turn now, um, finally and thirdly, to one more thing, the, the promise. We'll see this in verse 10 and 11. Here, as David ends, he ends with great confidence that his future holds a promise of ever-increasing delight. You will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life, verse 11. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. So there's a future element. Don't miss this. David is experiencing momentary delight in the present based on a gladness that will only come in the future. It's like a kid at school on Friday before Christmas break, and he's in math. He's like, I hate math. And his buddy says, yeah, but it's a half day, and when we get out, we're on Christmas break. Great! I can get through math. Well, he's not on break yet. But the future imputes itself into the present. So a lot of people think what David's getting at in verses 10 and 11 is his view onto the afterlife. That what he means is God will not abandon him to the darkness of despair now or hell later. And that he will know the joys of heaven. And this is precisely how the early Christians understood the meaning of Psalm 16. They had the advantage, of course, of learning that this psalm by the Holy Spirit is actually about Jesus. So here's how I want to close with you. I want to ask you, if you can, to turn to Acts chapter 2. It's on page 910 in your Bible. You're going to find this really neat. Do you know that Psalm 16, the end of it, is cited in the first Christian sermon? Did anybody know that? The very first sermon. So on the day of Pentecost, it's given by Peter. And if we understand Psalm 16's meaning in light of Jesus, we'll understand the promise of delight towards us. So let me read this to you. This is how Christians would read this psalm. I'm going to pick up in Acts 2, verse 22. If you're in your pew Bible, it's on the second column on page 910. This is Peter. Peter says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders. I'm skipping some things here. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Verse 24. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him. Now pause. What we're about to read is Peter quoting Psalm 16. I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, 
For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Now notice, going down to verse 29, who Peter says this psalm is actually referring to. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not to be abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. Footnote, if you're here and you're Jewish, this is an example of where the Old Testament points to Jesus. Psalm 16, also Isaiah 53. End of footnote. Here's why this is important for us about the promise of delight. Psalm 16 is about Jesus. And Jesus lived out the reality of Psalm 16. Did you, did you hear it on his lips as we read it? Jesus lost his portion in earth. He lost his portion in this life. It was taken from him. He had no place to lay his head. He had no home of his own. His whole body was taken from him. And Jesus endured the loss of his portion and all that pain. Why? Because he lived this psalm. He said, oh God, you will not abandon me. You will bring me into your presence. I am headed for fullness of joy and gladness. Jesus endures the cross, we're told in Hebrews, for the joy, the delight set before him. And you know, friends, Jesus death for us, you know, it signals God's delight over us. This is the note I want to strike as we end. You know, sometimes you, have, you, will, you will find it impossible to feel delight sometimes. It's just, it's just part of being in a fallen world and being broken. And you'll say, God's my portion. I don't feel anything. I'm praying all these Bible verses. I don't feel anything. Jesus died for me. I don't feel anything. You're going to have moments like that. And what I want to tell you to close is because of what's happening for you by Jesus through Psalm 16, you need to know that God delights over you. And sometime the only delight that you can taste is God's affection for you. He says through the prophet Isaiah, you shall no more be termed forsaken and your land shall no more be termed desolate, but you shall be called my delight is in her, for the Lord delights in you. Zephaniah 3, the Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exalt over you with loud singing. The arms of Jesus Christ over your life represent the Lord singing over you. He delights in you. And let that be sometimes, often, the very place where your delight in him begins. Lord, we thank you for King David. Lord, I don't know what it was like to write 70 psalms or more or play the lyre, that instrument, for King Saul when madness descended upon him or to live with the sin of Bathsheba or to have your own son betray you. 
Lord. But David was a man who somehow in his darkest moments said, I will delight myself in the Lord. And I pray we as a church would learn that discipline and experience that joy too. Amen.